so it's Thanksgiving. And I've been thinking about uh, the things that I'm grateful for and the things that I know that you are as well. And I wanted to talk particularly today about the gratitude that I feel for having a human heart, the capacity for caring. And Guy talked about the other night that the heart of the understanding of the Buddha is the preciousness of a human life. It's amazing to be a human being. We have the capacity to care. We have the capacity for converting the impulses of our heart, which aren't always for the well-being of all beings. We can convert them for the well-being of all beings. I was thinking about we have a transformable heart or a convertible heart. I thought to myself, it's not like having a heart transplant. It's like having a heart conversion. And I loved reading the sutta. I've been thinking about it, planning for today, and realizing that normally when I quote it, I start about a paragraph into it, and I start with, may all beings be happy. This one reads, this translation reads, may all beings be at ease. But I start with, may all beings be happy, whatever their living nature, whether large or small. And I realized in reading it again and studying it for today, that really the instructions before it, which we'll come back to and look at in some more detail in just a few minutes, are really the instructions for that practice of wishing with one's whole heart, may all beings be happy. Because it's simple to say you should have this practice, wish for everybody that they should be happy. It's very simple to say, but it's extremely hard to do. It's actually not that the all beings are a problem. All beings are not such a problem. It's a few beings that make wishing for all beings the problem. That it's amazing to me that people will say, you know, I can't, I, with all my heart, I wish well for all the beings on all realms everywhere, except for my cousin Charlie, who offended me so much that I can never forgive him, or except for this one particular thing that happened to me from which I can never release my heart. So really the question is, how can we become uh, able to forgive enough the people in our lives and the facts in our lives, just whatever happened to us? How can we forgive our lives so that we'll have a totally loving heart? You think about how it, 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 the, the words of, the, of, the, of Scripture where it says that compassion unbars the heart. Compassion is just the inverse, really, of loving-kindness unbars the heart from any restrictions it may have felt for really connecting with other people in whatever way that they may need that connection. In compassion and kindness, in rejoicing at their well-being. To think about that, we have that capacity as human beings. A friend of mine, um, one of my... uh, religion teachers when I was in graduate school, talked about what she thought was the difference between human beings and other animals. 
I don't know whether she'd made this up or read it from somebody else, but she said the difference between human beings and other kinds of animals is that uh, we laugh and we bury our dead. And I've thought about it for 30 years now since I heard that. And I thought, there's a way in which I, I like to understand that. First of all, how do we know about whether what other animals do? Maybe dogs really tell each other funny stories and laugh. <laughs> or, uh, maybe, um, I can't remember the name of the cartoonist who has the cows out in the field talking to each other. Um, yeah, there you go, Gary Larson. Maybe the cows and the chickens are actually talking to each other in the barn and telling jokes, but we don't think that, you know. The human beings have a capacity for delight. They laugh. They tell funny stories. They enjoy. They're tickled by things. And they mourn. I think that's what it means, bury the dead, because not everybody buries. Some people cremate. But we notice that people have died, and we mourn. We make ceremonies and rituals about it. And we care about that. And we miss them afterwards. And we remember them. Even that we know that lives come and go and it's what happens, still we miss people. And we have the capacity as human beings to uh, admire people, to aspire to be different, to really want to be different. Think about... um, how uh, well-known the face of the Dalai Lama has become in the last decade, two decades. Um, His face is on bulletin boards all over the place. His face is an icon on people's computer screens. Uh, It's become a universally known face. I remember uh, hearing some years ago about what were the three most widely, universally recognized symbols. What did people all over the world most recognize as a symbol? And the three that I read were Coca-Cola. You know, in that particular script that Coca-Cola is written in, it's written in cursive, slanting upwards. And all over the world, there are signs that say, buvez Coca-Cola glacé, or whatever, in whatever language, drink iced Coca-Cola. But the Coca-Cola is always in that script and in that shape. People know Coca-Cola. They know Mickey Mouse. They recognize the face of Mickey Mouse and Elvis Presley. Those are the three most universally recognized pictures. So I thought to myself, what if His Holiness the Dalai Lama is now the fourth in that category? And then I thought, well, that's okay. I thought about when you're a child in, you know, in uh, preschool or maybe, maybe, maybe a little bit more, maybe you're in the first grade and you have one of those activity pages of books and it's, it gives you a picture and there are four things in the picture and it says, circle the one that does not belong. So you thought, what if you had four pictures? Coca-Cola, Elvis Presley, Mickey Mouse, and the Dalai Lama. <laughs> and it said, circle the one that does not belong. I'm not sure that the Dalai Lama doesn't belong in that particular constellation. If you have that as a subgroup of 
what we think will make us feel good. Really. Because I think that's why it's such a universally recognized icon. I don't know that everybody who looks at the Dalai Lama thinks I'll feel good if I'm the Dalai Lama and wants his life, but they th- I think they do want his heart. I think that they look at the Dalai Lama as a person who's a human being, contemporary with us, with a life, with a very complicated life that really has had a tremendous amount of personal loss and pain. Here he is, the uh, temporal leader and the spiritual leader of a country that really has been overtaken, whose culture is being systematically destroyed, whose religion is very much imperiled. And here he is with a man with tremendous love. He would like it to be different. But I think he's not angry. And I think that's why he's becoming more and more a recognized icon, not for himself, but for the possibility of a heart that forgives. Not likes it, not wants it, not approves of it, wants it different, but doesn't fight with it. Does not add to this very difficult life in this very difficult world yet one more ounce of suffering or pain. We don't need any more pain or fear or fighting or anger in this world. We have enough. And I think that we admire it so much because we recognize that he's a human being and it's a capacity of the human heart. I was thinking again about (coughs) this uniquely human birth and Guy's reflection about uh, being thankful for it, the preciousness of it. I was thinking about cartoons again, because you know that I like cartoons. And I thought about the numbers of cartoons that I have seen that are different pictures, but they all have more or less the same caption on the bottom. So see if you can visualize a cartoon like this. first cartoon would be uh, someone's living room, and they've just come in, and uh, their cat is sitting in the middle of the living room, and the sofa is shredded. So you see the cat has been home all day alone and has shredded the sofa in boredom or whatever. All right, now visualize another cartoon. A person has come into a room, and the cat is sitting up on the tabletop next to an empty fishbowl where one intuits or infers that there formerly was a fish. And the cat is licking her chops while sitting up there. Okay, Or yet a third, someone uh, is opening the door of their house and finds that their cat has brought them the gift of a dead bird on the front step. And they, all of them, I've, I'm sure I've seen variations of all of them, so have you. And they all have variations of the same caption. The caption will say, now Fifi, Fifi, aren't you ashamed of yourself? And the joke in those cartoons is that Fifi isn't ashamed of herself. Cats are not supposed to be ashamed of themselves for scratching up somebody else's sofa or for eating a fish or bringing home a bird. It's in the nature of cats to do that. 
And the joke is on us that we talk to our cats as if they should have another nature. We laughed, so I'll tell you the other story of animal nature. Um, we had an Akita, a big, beautiful Japanese breed dog for 10 years. And we got one quite impulsively uh, because we saw a performance of trained Akitas wonderfully behaved at the Japan Center. And soon thereafter, my husband brought home an Akita puppy, which is really beautiful. They're teeny, and ours was white. And they're beautiful looking. There's this whole curly tail and a beautiful face that looks like a bear. And, uh, they're very sweet as puppies. And they're very sweet as adults. They, first of all, they're very little when they're born, and then they get to be 120 pounds if they're males like the one that we had. And um, they, they're very sweet all their lives with people and very protective of their owners. And they have an enormous sense of territoriality about their place and protecting it against all other dogs. So they're a burden when they're grown up because they're known to attack other dogs. They're fierce. But we decided um, when we got ours that we would raise him with enormous care and love and affection and that he would actually turn out to be loving and sweet because we grow up in that household. So we were tremendously sweet and careful with him even in all the puppy training, everything very sweet. And he was very sweet, and then he got to be a year old and came into his hormones. And all of a sudden, he remembered that he was an Akita. And from then on, for the whole rest of his life, we needed to have a very strong leash to take him for a walk, and we had to watch the doors so that he didn't accidentally get out. And he took very good care of us, but he really was quite a serious thing to look after for the rest of his life and he was just him and we really didn't expect him shouldn't have expected him to be different the very end of his life by the way when he was very old and very sick and very infirm and we really needed to take him to the veterinary hospital to have him put down in the end uh, my husband and I carried him practically down the steps the, the three steps the three flights of steps to the car he was so really enfeebled and just as we were opening the back of the car to put him in a small dog (laughs) who belonged to the handyman doing some work in the neighboring house came out of the garage just unwittingly and all of a sudden sort of with all his remaining strength Yuki reared himself up and growled and it was so sad heartbreaking this poor old dog about to, on his last afternoon in this world but he remembered who he was I was really proud of him but he wasn't meant to be other and the wonderful thing about human beings is that we can be other we can have come up in us territoriality and even <clears throat> anger about protecting our place we can have lust and not act on it if it's not the right time or the right place or skillful. We can change our hearts. That's what human beings can do. I was touched, as I'm sure I know you were, when James read the story the other night about um, 
the woman whose practice it is now to come to terms with forgiving in her own heart the man who was the murderer of her father 18 years ago. I know of that story. I knew about it, and I had listened to James again the other night. And I'm always so touched by it, of her remembering that when her father was murdered by this man, she certainly had all the grief about it, and has worked with the grief and gone on with her life and has a family and a life and a work. And here it is 18 years later, and he's up for parole. And I'm so touched by uh, the letter in which he says to her, even if I get this parole, I can never be at ease unless I cannot be healed at all unless I know that you've forgiven me. And the part that touches me perhaps even more is her recognition of the fact that neither can she be healed entirely unless she forgives him. And how hard it is for her to do it. I remember when I first read her letter, she said when she had a letter from him, he'd written to her from the prison in Grenada. She said it was so hard for her to recognize, to appreciate, to admit that the letter was very well written, that it was well spoken, it was articulate. He was clear about how contrite he was, how badly he felt, how filled with remorse he was. Somehow he sounded like a person, like a human being in pain, a thoughtful human being in pain. And it was so hard for her to admit to herself that the person who he is now, this thoughtful, articulate, contrite, remorseful person, transformed in his heart, was the same man who 18 years ago had done this very terrible thing. She said, I didn't want to think that about him. I wanted to keep him other, an enemy, so then I wouldn't have to do the hard work of transforming my heart to forgiveness. In her letter, she quoted Longfellow as something a, a line that I'll read to you now which he said really was very helpful to her. She said, Longfellow said, If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. It's hard for everybody. It's harder for some people than other people. We don't come into this life having been dealt even equal hands. How not to be embittered about that? How not to be embittered? That's the real question, I think. I think the larger question around the question of how can I forgive this person for this thing? How can I not be embittered? Because if the instruction in the Metta Sutta is cultivate and manifest a completely loving heart, the only way we can do that is if we have a completely non-embittered heart, if we're not angry. 
when Sally taught last night about the storms of mind that come up, among them anger. It was quite clear to me, and I know to you, that they are the normal storms that come up. It's not about not having the storms come up. It's about taking those storms and transforming them, as she said so clearly. That's the potential. That if we see them and recognize them in our mind and ourselves, that's where the work happens. That's where we transform ourselves from impulsive and reflexive response to considered and compassionate response. That's how the heart transformation happens. I think it's a very big piece of wisdom, of right understanding, to know that that transformation is really the source of happiness. It seems hard sometimes to give up something that we really wanted. Like, what will be left of me if I give this up? Or to make peace with something that we've really been adversarial with for a long time. Like the energy of that keeps us vital. But there's a great understanding, a great wisdom in knowing that really letting it go, when we can, if we can, is a source of happiness. Let's look at the sutta a little bit more together because I love those first lines. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and know the path of peace. I think that's again a teaching about wisdom, right understanding. That the path of goodwill, the path of an unbarred heart, is really the life of peace. Let them be able and upright straightforward and gentle in speech. I think that's an instruction in right action. You know, when Guy taught the other night and taught about um, the Four Noble Truths and talked about the fourth of the Four Noble Truths being the practice path or the path of life and the three parts of that path being right, understand, right wisdom and action Wisdom, virtue, and mind cultivation. Panya, sila, samadhi. And we come here together and we do this practice together really focusing on the cultivation of understanding and insight through attention to mind moment to moment. And really the hope of this paying attention that we do here is that we'll come to understand with more and more clarity the nature of suffering and the roots of suffering in ourselves, in our own hearts and minds and how that translates into the whole world. And by seeing that, we will be so opened in our hearts, heartbroken in a certain way, that the response will be Wisdom that is filled with compassion. Understanding of suffering that manifests itself in compassion. That's really the piece of the work that primarily is what we are doing here together on retreat. But really it's a piece of that larger understanding 
If we do this to augment our understanding, to build our understanding of what is true, really to remind us of the nature of suffering and the possibility of the end of it or moments of freedom from it and really to inspire us about care in the way that we live. It seems to me that the more I understand about the nature of suffering, the more careful I am about how I behave in the world. If someone had said to me before I began my meditation practice, you should take up this practice, it will make you more kind. I probably would have said, I'm kind enough. It wasn't what worried me the most. My lack of kindness was not what worried me the most. What worried me the most was fearfulness. I got kinder, though, from doing this. I think we all do. And I'm beginning to think that fundamentally, really just what we want to do. Wiser, but wiser that manifests as kindness. I think to myself often, what if the whole world woke up tomorrow kind? Straightforward and gentle in speech, that's a piece of virtue behavior. Gentle in speech. Humble and not conceited. I thought about that a lot. I love that. I think it's a piece of right understanding. I think a lot about um, how whatever it is that I do is really not mine. It's really, if I teach well, it's because I had the good fortune of a lot of teachers who were very good, who had the good fortune of a lot of teachers. And I had the good fortune of good health and good family and good support. And the karma of any moment of anybody's life is really the karma of the whole world forever. So whatever merit I have is everyone's merit. And by the same token, whatever faults, also everybody's. So there isn't any problem about humble or conceited. It's not necessary. Humble, not conceited, contented, easily satisfied. I couldn't be other, you couldn't be other, none of us could be other. It's very big relief to know that. Unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. I thought about that a lot too because we all have so many duties. And I thought it's not about not having duties. It's not about not having tasks. We all of us have tasks to do in the world and we all are going to go home and do them with renewed vigor and the task we have here we are doing with a lot of vigor. I think the emphasis in that sentence is on unburdened and the wisdom that it requires to know this is a task I can and should be doing to take this on would be burdensome and it would also be probably an act of non-wisdom not seeing clearly or it would be an act uh, uh, if I were taking on more than I could do of not understanding clearly what I could do or of thinking it was all up to me both of them not clear understanding. 
peaceful and calm, wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. I love that line. And think about, suppose before we did anything, we thought to ourselves, would the wise later reprove of this? I'll tell you one little story and then we'll do a practice together. Um, my uh, my three-year-old grandson, Harrison, um, if you remember how it is between two and three, up until about two, you get to be, you get to do more or less what you feel like doing. And then you get to be, oh, one and a half, two years old. People start to say to you, don't do that. And you start to discover that you can't just do any old thing that you feel like, that there are other people around and what they care about also matters in addition to what you care about. So there was some moment last year that just stays engraved in my mind. I love it. It's a little photo put away in my mind where uh, I was having lunch with uh, my daughter Elizabeth and Harrison. And Harrison was eating a cookie and I guess he had eaten enough of it so that he didn't want any more of that cookie. He had enough. So now he had a half a cookie in his hand, a big cookie, and it's potentially crumbly. It's interesting to look at. And he had a cookie in his hand, and he held it out over the side of his chair. And you could see that he was thinking about crumbling that cookie. It would be interesting to do that. That would be a thing. It could fall on the floor. And um, Elizabeth said to him, Harrison, do you think that would be a good idea or a bad idea? And I thought that's such a wonderful thing to say to yourself before you're about to do something. (laughs) Would this be a good idea or a bad idea? I think to myself, when I read that line in the sutta and it says, and not doing the slightest thing of which the wise would later reprove, I think for our own wisdom faculty, would I later reprove myself of doing this? I might feel like doing it now. All of the hindrance talk that Sally talked about last night, I might feel like doing this now, but would that be wise? Maybe not. And that as human beings, we have the possibility of doing it another way. We have a lot of possibilities as human beings. And the possibility of forgiving people, not because it's an abstract good idea, but because it's the key to peace and ease in our own hearts. We have the possibility of forgiving ourselves also for whatever it is we think we haven't done or whatever it is we think we haven't done correctly. I'm thinking a lot these days about how maybe it's even harder to forgive ourselves than to forgive other people. We forget about it somehow. Most of us here, I think, are pretty kind. Probably took a show of hands who here thinks they're kind. Everybody. This is a practice that attracts kind people. I'm not so sure we're so kind to ourselves. Because this is also a hard practice, so it, it attracts people who really try really hard. And people who are hard triers have high standards for themselves. I'm not so sure that we're so spacious with ourselves as we are for other people. It's a very tremendous piece of wise understanding to understand 
the truth of karma that really sustains equanimity, that equanimity that knows it couldn't be different. One of the best lines I know is a line that somebody in the Wednesday morning class here said a couple of years ago. She said her response to the question when people ask, how are you, is, I couldn't be better. She said, normally when people say I couldn't be better, it means I'm in the pink. You know, it's just all wonderful. She said, it's always true I couldn't be better. Even if I'm in a mess, I couldn't be better. Even if I'm suffering, I couldn't be better. Nobody purposely suffers. If we could be better, we would. (laughs) So we really couldn't be better at any given time. It's actually a source of great compassion when we're struggling and stuck in something that we can't be better. Don't you ever get in that place where you know if I could just forgive this, I'd be okay? But you can't. If I could just open to this truth, I'd be fine. But I can't. If I could just let this be the way it is, but I can't, that that's a place of great suffering if we could let it go. Even you know it, you can't let it go. It's also a possibility for great extra suffering about I know this, therefore I should let it go. Knowing doesn't let it go either. It goes when it goes. How to say thank you to a whole life. I heard a story last night, last week, from a a friend of mine who lives in the Midwest. told me about a friend of a friend of his whom he had just met. A woman who had uh, just had a complicated heart operation for... um, a serious heart ailment and young 50 year old woman and um, how touched he had been as I was when I heard the story of her request of her surgeons before the surgery and she's fine the surgery was very successful her request of her surgeons that they save the valve that they took out and give it to her to hold afterwards because she wanted to thank it for working for 50 years. And I thought to myself, what if we thanked everything for as long as we had it or as long as it worked or forever? Either that it's still working or that it used to work. I thought to myself, at some point in our lives, there's going to be a whole lot that doesn't work anymore that used to work for all of us. It was a sort of a big evening here the other night uh, where I came in and James said, come and sit over here. Don't sit over there. You're too far away from me. And I said, well, I have to sit on a chair now because it just doesn't work for me to sit on a Zappo anymore. And he said, well, we'll push that away. And I said, no, no, leave it there. I might sometimes sit on it. But then in the moment of clarity after that, I said, but it would be folly for me to sit on it afterwards because the truth is, I can't. That disc is not going to grow back anymore. And it's just, I've sat on it for 25 years, but not anymore. And I miss it. I loved it. I liked it a lot. And I said to him, if we push over that platform, which you see we did, I said, this is going to be a very big ritual act witnessed by a whole lot of people who don't even know that they're witnessing it. But now you do. And it's a very small give up in the 
fear of things to give up. It's just from the zapu onto a chair. But in our whole life, we're giving up this and we're giving up that and this won't work anymore and that won't work anymore. And maybe that never worked. But how to be able to say, this is the way it is and thank you. To be able to say thank you to a whole life an extraordinary piece of work and I think an extraordinary freedom. So I thought about what a big job it is and I thought that thanking is an act of love and I began to do some arithmetic about thanking people. I thought, well, there are six billion people on this earth and uh, how about thanking each of them individually? Someone gave me a computer readout the other day of one life and it said one life, this is a life of a hundred years. That's a long life. One life is a hundred years, is four hundred seasons, is twelve hundred months, is fifty-two hundred weeks, is thirty-six thousand four hundred days, and somewhat more than 8 billion seconds. So I thought, how long does it take to say thank you to one person? Thank you. About a second. Okay. So if we could individually go around to all the people in the world and say thank you, it would take 6 billion seconds. Now, of course, the population of the world is increasing exponentially, and I'm 64 and I didn't start yet, so it, it can't work that way. So it has to be another way. So it has to be that somehow in the realm of all beings, I take care of thanking all the beings whose names I don't know. But I think I get to be able to thank the beings I don't know because I can thank the beings that I do know by name. I really think that hidden in that teaching of the preciousness of a human birth is the possibility of conversion of a human heart and the possibility of particularity of affection. I think that it's true of human beings that we can love in the abstract all beings because we know that they suffer as we do and they yearn as we do and they want for their families just the same things that we do and everyone wants happiness. But we know it because of our affectful ties with our kin and our friends We learn to love through our relationships with the people who are closest to us. And we learn about sadness and loss through our relationships with the people who are closest to us. We don't do compassion by proxy. So I thought we would do a practice together of thanking the people that we know. And I thought about that thanking is appreciating And one way I uh, say thank you is I say thank you. And another way I say thank you is I say I love you. With a number of my friends, we have the habit as well of uh, not hanging up the phone by saying goodbye, but hanging up the phone by saying I love you. It means the same. Goodbye means God be with you until we meet again. It's a long mouthful. I love you is shorter. So this is a metta that I have been practicing with people and I want to practice it with you. 
You can do this with your eyes open or closed. Maybe close your eyes. Think of a person that you love a lot and see that person in front of you, in your mind's eye. Take a breath in. As you breathe out, imagine that comes out from you in all directions, out of your heart, a wish, everything good for that person. And in your mind, as you see that person, say to them, I love you, and let your breath out. Now see another person that you love a lot. Breathe in. Breathe out and think I love you. Now do it again and again and every single breath in, change the person. You don't need more instructions than that. You'll do your family, your kin, your friends, your teachers, your associates, your colleagues, your dentist, the person who delivers the mail. Make yourself really, make it, make it, make it play. It's a wonderful play to love the whole world. See if you can really do it. A hundred breaths, maybe a hundred people. And you absolutely can't think of anyone else. So you have to go through all your teachers and all your friends and all your everything. You absolutely have run out of names and faces. Then do, may all beings. And imagine that the whole world is standing in front of you. And on the breath out, I love you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.